It's been great to worship with you this morning. Some of those songs just kind of sore my heart and ready to roll. I just couldn't wait to get in the pulpit and let it fire. Are you ready to go? <laughs> uh, again, my name is Henry Vosberg. I'm the director for Midwest Church Extension, and uh, we have had a missionary relationship uh, with you here at Portage for over 20-some years, and so it's really exciting to be able to come back and be with you. Uh, as many of you have, have testified as you've come into the door, you've inquired about my health, and I just want to let you know that God has, uh, has answered our prayers. Um, now 18 months and running in remission from the cancer that I was afflicted with, and uh, everything is looking good. You can pray for us. We have uh, uh, a little bit of a maintenance issue that we'll probably have to tackle in October or November. Um, because the, uh, uh, the tumor was in my small intestine, and because it was such a critical nature, they did have to remove that tumor and then reconnect the plumbing, so to speak, right? Uh, and because of that, uh, there's, there's some scar tissue that is there, and then it's kind of manifested, and it's interfering with some digestion. No big deal. It's, there is no cause for concern. It just needs to be cleaned up a little bit. And so we'll be conferring with a surgeon next month about that. And then to follow up in November will be my next checkup with the oncologist and uh, all the signs and everything that we could want to have happening are happening for me. And uh, everything is going very, very well. So I just want you all to be, uh, to know how much uh, Linda and I are so very, very grateful for Portage Bible Church, for your intercessions on our behalf. And for God, let him have all the praise and the glory. He's been merciful to me in my life. And uh, I rejoice in him for that. And I want to thank you for your, for your part in, in praying for me. And we're going we're gonna to keep this thing going. Some of you have asked about how's your energy level. In the last few months, I feel like I'm probably as back in the game as I could possibly get for, for an old guy. And, uh, you know, I just feel like right now that uh, um, the energy is back as, as good as it was at least beforehand. And I'm really thankful for, to, to the Lord to be able to continue doing the work of the ministry and planting churches. That's enough of the commercial and the update. I'm here to give you the word of God this morning. Take your Bibles, find Romans chapter 10, if you will. This morning and then this evening, uh, my purpose is to really rally you to your understanding, your embrace, really. I'm going to use that word a lot today. Your embrace of the theme that you have been given. There it is above me now. Uh, How shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? That is a pivotal, pivotal rhetorical question from the Apostle Paul here in Romans chapter 10 out of verse 14. I've added verse 15 for us to consider. And as we open this message, and how shall they preach except they be sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. Many are the scriptures that you could find, verses, passages that that rise 
to the level of, 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 of signature status, if you were, if you were to have a theme for a missions conference, and well, you could go through the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but you go to the, none of those verses for a missions conference could surpass the Great Commission. I don't know how many of you were here, but many, many moons ago, uh, I actually did a missions conference here in your church on the Great Commission passages, probably when they were transcribing things in stone and chisel, but uh, that's how far back it goes when I was here to do that with you. But uh, how could you find a greater, a greater missionary content than those four verses? Book of Acts as well, filled with signature verses as, as the mission program of God's church is advancing and, and it's happening in context and has its own great commission verse as well. And so many highlights from apostolic sermons by Peter or Paul and so on. But you know, when you start traveling into the epistles, which are books or letters that are largely written to churches that needed instruction and quite often they needed correction, we find all kinds of content. It's substantial about the, the great Christian doctrines that are set forth. Uh, we have instruction about church life, personal life as believers, but we don't find near the volume of missions-targeted expressions as you find in the Gospels and Acts. And so, when you do encounter one, like in our text today, uh, they tend to stand out. And when we consider that this passage, we find in this passage, we find some of Paul's most passionate language in all of his writings. It's written with very clear urgency, but yet some of the most Simplicit, simplistic words that you could find. You're, you cannot help but see how these verses themselves, out of Romans 10, they rise to that same signature status to compel God's church to the mission that he has given to her. I'm going to say that it's not much of a stretch to argue that most, if not everyone here today, has heard at least one message that's either focused or alludes at least to these verses in Romans 10. They are that signature to the theme of missions. And, be, and this is because, unlike a lot of passages or a lot of verses, Romans 10, when you get to these, especially those that revolve around verses 9 to 15, uh, it's very difficult to kind of rip them from their context and misrepresent their meaning. They're that clear. And unless someone is completely derelict or they're com when they go to process the meaning of these words, you, you just can't mess up Romans 10. It's just that obvious. They are that explicit, that simplistic, and frankly, I will add this, they are that inescapable when it comes to their message. So we're dealing with some obviousness when we look at these verses. And because of that, I have entitled my sermon this morning, The Simple Realities About the Gospel of Christ. The Simple Realities About the Gospel of Christ. I've chosen that title because when we examine these verses in the context of this amazing treatise that is the book of Romans, we discover that these words are where doctrinal discussion and spiritual tangibility, they, they, they kind of converge here. Truth in concept now connects to truth in life. And if I could just... Uh, 
do my own little spin on a, on a phrase you know. It's rubber of tire meets asphalt of road. Okay? It's right here. Rubber meeting the road. You can't, you, at the beginning of Romans, you've got that classic memory verse. I'm sure you've learned it in Awana. You've learned it in your Sunday school. Romans 1.16. You can even say it with me if you know it. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And then for the rest of this entire document, all 16 chapters that follow, Paul sets forth an epistolary masterpiece. He's defining, he's explaining, and then he, apply, he applies the saving gospel message. Chapters 1 to 3, he unpacks the lost condition of all men, Jews and Gentiles alike. They're, they are in utter sinfulness. They have a complete lack of righteousness, and it places them as hopelessly guilty before a holy God as righteous judge. But then, Paul shows how God himself has established the means to become righteous, to be declared righteous, to, to be means of justification, to have the judge's declaration of not guilty pronounced over sinners. It's justification by faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. Amen. <laughs> then in chapters 4 and 5, Paul teaches that this power, this power of the gospel, this power under salvation, it's by the power of the cross. The power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that is the power of the gospel. He teaches us that this is made available to all men, Jews and Gentiles alike, and they can be reconciled to God, have his righteousness imputed to them. It's not our own, but his, that is of Jesus Christ. Then he progresses into verse chapters rather 6 and 8 and talks about the doctrine of sanctification, that, that by the power of this gospel unto salvation from among Jews and Gentiles alike, those that are declared righteous, they've been set apart from sin and unto God. And since they're no longer in bondage to sin, they are then to live out this righteousness that has already been granted to them possessing a salvation that, according to Romans 8, forever locked and secured to us in the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Well, that takes us to chapter 9, the chapter leading into our text, because here's where Paul opens up a very critical discussion within the book, because a thoughtful reader might inquire, how is it that Israel needs this gospel. You say Jews and Gentiles alike. I mean, how do they, why do they need this power of God unto salvation? Aren't they chosen? Do they not have the law? Are they not given the oracles of God himself? How is it with these things that Israel isn't already righteous? And so Paul speaks to this in chapters 9 through 11, and in the midst of that discussion, he utters these great missionary verses in chapter 10. He explains simple realities of the gospel of Christ. This question about why Israel needing to be saved is actually a pretty deep question, but it has a very, very simple answer. So we're going to see these words in context. In doing this, we're going to draw from them the very essence of gospel purpose, gospel mission to which you and I, we all must be engaged. Let's begin at verse 1. Because here we see some of the most transparent words that Paul ever wrote. He says in chapter 10, verse 1, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. 
you can almost hear the missionary pulse of Paul as he says that. He is so passionate for Israel to come to Christ. Back in chapter 9, he even said that Israel's lostness was caused for great heaviness and continual sorrow. He even wished himself accursed from Christ for his kinsmen according to the flesh. To say that, to say that you would give up your eternal place for someone else, that might be hyperbole. I get that from a language point of view, but it conveys the depth of Paul's longing heart for his people to be saved. And I'm going to venture to say someone, maybe many here today, that you felt that very way over your own lost ones. You have had that's that depth of longing for them to come to Christ. You know it's not possible to give up your place. But you would if you could in order to see your lost parents, your lost children, your lost grandchildren come to faith in Christ. You would do it if you could. Well, that was Paul's heart for Israel. But he also knew what Israel's problem was. Because he's going to say in verses 2 to 5, I want Israel to be saved, but they're not approaching righteousness through salvation correctly. Watch what he says, verse 2. For I bear them record that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness, they have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. For Moses described the righteousness which is of the law, that the man which doeth those things shall live by them. They're approaching righteousness through salvation incorrectly. They're approaching righteousness through works and not through faith. What was the word I emphasized? Believeth. They're approaching righteousness through the law and not through Christ, who is the fulfillment of the law. That approach is all wrong because it's the approach that's not conveyed through the gospel of Christ. That's the message which is the power of God to everyone, for unto salvation to everyone that what? Believeth. Not of works. It's by grace through faith that salvation is the gift of God. It's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Ghost. Israel had it wrong and they still have it wrong to this day. They are seeking righteousness in the keeping, the working out of the law. What they're doing is they're elevating the letters themselves and not taking into account the person of Christ which the law points to is its fulfillment. And Paul has already established in chapter 1, verse 17, that the just shall live by faith. Right. To be made righteous happens by faith. And because of this, three simple realities about the gospel of Christ become plainly evident. So note with me in verses 6 through 8, simple reality number one. The gospel of Christ is available. The gospel of Christ is available. But the righteousness which is of faith speaketh on this wise. Say not in thine heart, who shall ascend into the heaven, that is, to bring Christ down from above? Or who shall descend into the deep, that is, to bring up Christ again from the dead? But what saith it? 
The word is nigh thee, even in thy mouth and in thy heart, that is, the word of faith which we preach. It's available. The gospel of Christ, is, which is the power of God unto salvation, it is not a secret. It's not hard to discover. And to make his point, Paul actually uses the law, makes use of the law itself to draw similar words that are found out of Deuteronomy 30, of all places. Because in that context, Moses was urging Israel before his death to acknowledge that the voice of God that was provided in the commandments, in the statutes that had been delivered to that nation, it was not hidden. It's not difficult to find. You don't have to climb into the heavens to retrieve God's truth. You don't have to plumb the depths of the earth to disinter God's truth. The truth that had been revealed as of Moses' day, according to Deuteronomy 30, 14, it is nigh unto thee, it is in thy mouth and in thy heart. Well, Paul says that even so, as the truth was then, so it is today. The message of, verse 6, righteousness, which is of faith, it's just as available. Jesus today does not need to be brought out of the heavens to be known. Why? Because the gospel message tells us that's already happened. Jesus today does not need to be raised up from the depths because the gospel message shows that this too has already happened. The truth is revealed in the gospel today. It's available. He says right here, it is nigh thee. It is even in thy mouth and in thy heart that is the word of faith. It's now delivered through the apostles and preached by God's ministers unto the saving of souls. That means that we, as the people of faith today, we boldly affirm that the gospel message remains the same. It is as true as ever and it is as available as ever. The mission of the Son of God was fulfilled. Guess what? He pronounced it so from the cross. Tetelestai. It is finished. There is no more death sentence to satisfy because the payment has been made in full by Jesus. The power over death doesn't need any more display because we have a resurrected Son of God and guess what? He's still resurrected, praise God. And he will forever remain in that glorious state. Hebrews 7 tells us this. But this man, because he continueth ever, he has an unchangeable priesthood, wherefore he is able also to save them to the uttermost that come to God by him, seeing that he ever liveth to make intercession for them. Jesus did the dying so sinners don't have to. Jesus does the living forever as the first fruits of the resurrection so that we can, be the, we can live forever as the subsequent fruits. That's the gospel message. It is no secret, and it boasts no unseen entrance. Salvation's gate is narrow. That's to be sure. There is only one way. But it is available. And it's available to all. Its truth is as close as the words that are spoken from the wellspring of believing hearts. Guess what? It is as close as here to here. And that compels me then to voice to you this moment that if you are here today and you have yet to truly reckon with the issue of your sin condition before God as righteous judge, the gospel message is available to you this very moment. This day, this place, 
John 8.24 teaches that if you do not believe that Jesus is the promised Messiah, the Son of God, quote, you shall die in your sins. For if you believe not that I am he, ye shall die in your sins. Those are the words of Jesus. Jesus, our Savior, died on the cross for your sins so that you do not have to die in your sins. You can have that condition changed if you will put your trust, your faith, in the Savior himself. Embrace. Embrace the substitution of his death as payment for the eternal death you would have to pay on your own. All that remains to be done is for your condition to be changed. Don't try to pay a price for something that has already been bought. Believe the very available gospel of Jesus Christ because it is the power of God unto salvation. Be saved. Be saved today. And with that, let's move to the next verses where we encounter simple reality number two. We're going to look at verses 9 through 15 here and learn, secondly, the gospel of Christ is comprehensible. It's available, but it's also comprehensible. It's comprehensible. You see, the magnitude of man's sinfulness, the void of God's righteousness, it's a vast thing. We even sang about that vastness, that incomprehensibleness in our previous song today. Frankly, it'd be easier for you to walk to the moon than it would be to overcome the measure of your depravity. Our sin is an irresolvable problem. But, the solution that's brought through the gospel of Christ. It's not a difficult matter. It's not outside our grasp. The simple reality is that it is indeed so comprehensible that the faith of a mere child, one can find salvation through Jesus Christ. But the gospel, both its message and its means, are very easy to comprehend. I want you to notice from verses 9 to 13, it has comprehensible content as comprehensible content, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in thine heart that God has raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture saith, whatsoever, whosoever rather believeth on him shall not be ashamed, for there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek, for the same Lord over all is rich unto all that call upon him. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. It's comprehensible content. You see, man, he has this proclivity to want things complex. He wants things hard to fulfill, but then to grasp them, we kind of boil them down into increments. For example, to fix our problems, we have 12 steps. We pass through seven levels. We achieve a hierarchy of 10 ranks. We receive or go through four stages to nirvana. I'm, I'm surprised that no one's come up with 98.6 degrees in order to be normal. You know, 98 are really easy, but that 0.6, ooh, that's a Lulu. You know? <laughs> Well, forget all that when it comes to the gospel. When it comes to, to, to what must be believed in order to be saved. Not that hard. Gospel message is comprehensible content. Jesus died according to the scriptures, was buried, and rose again on the third day according to the scriptures. Any confusion? 
You see, when a soul embraces the simple message about the work of Jesus Christ, as Paul says in the end of verse 9, thou shalt be saved. Embracing the gospel includes cognitive agreement. Verse 9, again, if you will confess, if a person confesses the Lord Jesus, that word confess, it literally means from the original to say the same thing. To say the same thing. It's us going on record with God who is listening to us that we agree with his truth that Jesus Christ is his son and that as God, he is the Lord revealed unto men. Just like he told the Philip in John 14, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Cognitive agreement. Our confession that that is true. And then Paul says that this agreement comes from a believing heart. It's with a core investment of trust. If you will believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. Paul says, believe in your heart. See, cognitive agreement could be just simply construed as mental assent, but it's more than just your intellectual approbation. There, there has to be this core investment of belief, of faith, trust in the simple reality of our Lord's resurrection. We're highlighting that event because that is the completion of the whole story of the good news. And that it is accomplished for sinners it, that, that we have life. There is no right, no authority to give the gift of life if he himself had not secured that victory already over death. Because Jesus, by the resurrection, he did just that. As Paul would tell the Corinthians, O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? It's swallowed up in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So if you take that pairing together, confessing and believing, embracing the gospel, that is my knowledgeable agreement to the truth that runs tandem with my personal investment of trust in that truth. And both of these are expressed so simplistically in verse 10. With the heart, man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth, confession is made unto God. That message, verse 12, it's for all men to embrace, so that worth verse 13, the souls call upon the name of the Lord, that sinner is saved. Nothing more to grasp, because nothing more is needed in order to be saved. The content of the gospel, very clear, very comprehensible. And further on with this simple reality, we see that from Paul, uh, this, that processing this ministry of the gospel is equally comprehensible. Let's go to verses 14 and 15. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach except they be sent? So if people are to be reached unto salvation, how is all that to happen? How is it that men are going to call upon the name of the Lord to be saved? Well, Paul very clearly outlines it for us here. He explains a comprehensible process by which the gospel makes its impact upon sinners' lives. There is the calling out. The calling out is that soul's appeal from a heart of faith to be saved. Take it a step back. What is that faith? Faith is the heart response that leads to the call. It's that heart investment to the message that is heard. Take it a step back from there. Hearing is the reciprocal component to a proclamation that is the transmitting component. I am hearing what I am to put my faith in so that I then will call upon the Lord to be saved. 
And if there's a proclamation, it is to be certified by an authority who has commissioned that person to speak on behalf of that authority. So you have all of those steps, calling, or saving, calling, faith, hearing, preaching, sending. That's a simple, comprehensible, logical sequence. So what it boils down to is this. The God of heaven, who is waiting to hear the call of sinners for salvation, has provided for every part of this conveyance. God has the heart to answer every call. He is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come unto repentance. He enables the voice to speak the message to that person in the form of a preacher, a proclaimer, an ambassador that he has sent to represent him. And in all this way, through that simple sequencing, the ministry of the gospel goes forth to the whole world. This is why you don't have to make a case for your missions program. This is why you don't have to offer an apologetic for evangelizing your neighborhood. Why? Because the heartbeat of God himself is so willing, so ready to save sinners that he made the message and the process simple to comprehend. He so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That is good news. And he commissioned those who have embraced that message then to share it with the next person who has not yet embraced that message. That, my friends, is a simple reality. And all that is needed is for us to engage it. Again, a simple reality. Now, there's one more point to be made here in this passage. So, so. Let's think with me. I've said that these matters are very simple, so it might beg some questions. Well, then why isn't everyone just getting saved if it's this simple? Why does the gospel even have to be preached if it's that easy? Why did Paul even have to write in the New Testament if it's so handy and ready and right there? Well, the answer to those questions becomes the third simple reality about the gospel of Christ and actually, this one is the game changer. Simple reality number three is this. The gospel of Christ must be obeyed. The gospel of Christ must be obeyed. It is an unfortunate thing that the word obedience with the connection with the gospel message is something that is not often emphasized, but nevertheless, it is the heart of the issue for Israel rejecting the very Messiah that she was and is to be seeking. Look at verse 16. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. Interesting. For Isaiah saith, Lord, who hath believed our report. Now, see, one might say, wait, wait, wait. I thought we believed the gospel, not obeyed it. Because obeying it sounds an awful lot like works to me. Well, I can understand that possible reaction. And believe me, I have, among <laughs> uh, many things that I'm passionate about, it is this. One commitment that I have is to the very clear message of faith alone, of belief in Jesus Christ in order for the gift of life to be secured. And frankly, that is to be a very clear message from us. 
It's a commitment we should never lose. We must hold tenaciously, without compromise, to the truth of sola fide, faith alone in regard to salvation. But if I can just parse this out, I am certain it will be clear to you. What is the object of saving faith? Answer, it is the person of Jesus Christ. Not the message of Jesus Christ. Your faith is not in words or letters that form the components as the components of words and then fit grammatically into a sentence. You didn't believe a, a document. You didn't put your faith in a, a sentence stream. You put your faith in the person of Jesus Christ. Amen? It, it's, it's a personal relationship with him. So then those formatted components of letters, words, and all the grammar, that, that's not salvific because those are just the tools for communicating the person of the Savior himself. Therefore, what I am to do with the, to do with the message, I am to trust the person to whom the message points me. That message tells me I must put my faith in Jesus Christ. I must believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. It's very important to remember that when Paul and Silas said those words to the Philippian jailer, those words were spoken in the imperative mood. The imperative mood is the mood for commands. What did they command him to do in order to be saved? Believe. What do you do with commands? You obey them. You obey them. If I obey what the gospel tells me, I will believe. I will come to Jesus Christ by faith. The gospel must be obeyed. And this is where Israel has gotten it wrong. And frankly, the whole unbelieving world has gotten it wrong here. They have not obeyed the gospel. Because in the main, they have not believed in Jesus as the Christ, the Son of the living God. And therefore, they've created this breakdown in the process that Paul has just outlined. Calling, faith, hearing, preacher, commission. Where is that breakdown? It's at the faith stage of that process. Well, does that mean that what was to happen before didn't take place? You know, maybe they didn't get the word so that they could hear it and then believe on it. Did they not get the word through a preacher commissioned or sent by God? Did somehow the sequence that preceded their hearing and then their faith, did it break down? Well, Paul finishes the chapter by saying that is not what happened. Verse 17, so then faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. But I say, have they not heard? If they haven't believed, maybe they didn't hear anything. Did they not hear? Paul says, oh, verily, their sound went into all the earth. Their words unto the ends of the world. Oh, they've heard. And not only did they know the word and hear the word, but Israel was also told the consequence of their rejection. Moses, the man that they clearly elevate, a man clearly sent by God to speak God's words, he said in verse 19, but, did I, but I say, did not Israel know? Well, first Moses saith, I will provoke you to jealousy by them that are no people, and by a foolish nation I will anger you. 
Moses told you what would happen when you didn't obey the gospel. Isaiah is another person he quotes. Verse 20, Isaiah is very bold and saith, I was found of them that sought me not. I was manifest unto them that asked not after me. But to Israel, he saith, all day long I've stretched forth my hands unto a disobedient and gainsaying people. The whole process for God to save Israel, it was working. It was doing everything it was supposed to do right up until the faith part. And then the process breaks down. Israel has not called out to God because Israel doesn't believe. Now let's remind ourselves that Paul is discussing why Israel is not saved. That's where the context is in these verses. I'm going to part from that just a little bit and drive home an application that is tandem with this for ourselves. And with that, we'll wrap up today's study. He's very passionate to see Israel put faith in Jesus Christ. And it's because the whole process of God's plan for man to be saved, it broke down at the faith part of that sequence. That's the case for Israel. The gospel of Christ has to be obeyed, and they on the whole have not done so. But it needs to be pointed out here that though Israel and the gospel is the primary context of the passage, it is an illustration that when you look at that component, that, the, uh, uh, that sequence rather, that each of those components is, it contributes to the process working as it should. Concerning Israel, that process broke down at the faith stage. But what if another part of the process were to stop working? And that is very possible. Let's say for some reason the hearing breaks down because you can't put your faith in that which you haven't heard. And you can't call out if you haven't believed. And so the hearing part could break down. Well, maybe there was no word to be heard. Well, that's possible. Maybe there was no preacher. It's possible that it could have broken down at that part of the sequence. How could that be? Well, perhaps there was no one sent to be a preacher. And then we do ask, how could that be? Well, let's pause there and let's make this point as our closing challenge. Let's agree that in that sequencing, there's six parts to it, the sequencing, that a process might break down at any one of those stages. That means that every one of those stages, there's a mover, there's an actor to perform the function so that the sequential function of God is, can, can, can work as he has determined. So let's start at the beginning and consider the sender. Who is the commissioner? Who is the one that does the sending? That is a function that is of God, because it says in Matthew, he is the Lord of the harvest. Is there a breakdown at that part of the of the phase? No, thank you. I'm glad I see a few numbers of shaking heads. Yeah, I'm good, your theology's right. Amen to that. I mean, that has not happened. I mean, five great commission passages already telling us that there are people who are sent. Who are they? The followers of Jesus Christ. They're sent. So the sending hasn't broken down. Paul himself says that we are commissioned as ambassadors in 2 Corinthians. And so by definition, that means that the sending has already happened. And so to say that a breakdown has occurred there means that God hasn't done his job. Guess what? That's not the way it works. That can't be true. It's not even possible that God somehow let us down or let himself down. Well, then let's move it to the next part of the sequence. What about that preacher proclaimer step? Because if there are those that are sent, it's very, it's hypothetically possible that they're not going and doing the speaking 
And then surely the process can, be, can break down there. Well, who are the sent? And are they speaking? You and I were the sent. We're the proclaimers. We're the preachers. So we have to ask, are we speaking? Are we broadcasting the truths of the gospel? That brings us to Paul's words, which frankly are pretty much right in our face. How shall they hear without a preacher? The sending's been done, but are the sent speaking? If not, well, the process, if it breaks down then there, then how will those who must hear, believe, and call ever do so if the sequence breaks down because of us? We can't make the world listen. We can't make the world believe, and we surely can't make them call. But we must give them the option to hear. Or else the whole process breaks down where it is our responsibility. This is yet one more reason to justify that you have a vibrant missions program in your church. One more reason to certify that your evangelism in your neighborhood, your community, local missions, if you will, that it is every bit as active as your regional, national, and global missions endeavors. It is because all the world around us, near and far, they need to hear the truth of Jesus Christ. But how will they hear without a preacher? You must saturate your community, your local mission field, with the message of the gospel so that every soul will hear. Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Therefore, it is incumbent upon us to support those missionary endeavors wherever we cannot go ourselves, and we must support in prayer and intercession for gospel proclamation right in our own backyards. Earlier this year, I was invited to speak at a church in Southern California to address a missions conference theme that revolved from Paul's testimony before King Agrippa in Acts chapter 26. And as I spoke that message and recalled the drama of that moment, and you'll remember if you know that story, it's a little bit isolated, but some familiar words when Agrippa heard such compelling words from Paul, and he says, Almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. Very compelling statement from King Agrippa. I spoke about that, and I spoke about the, Paul's response. Oh, I wish it was almost, but I wish it was altogether that you would believe. Almost is not enough. It's altogether that we're going for. When I finished, and in the dinner that followed, the pastor's wife came to me and said, there's an Iranian woman that's been attending our church We've been ministering to her in the midst of some very tense times within her home. She was here today and heard your message, and she put her faith in Jesus Christ. The darkness of the Muslim teachings were overcome with the power of the gospel. It is indeed the power of God unto salvation. 
she put her faith in Christ. It didn't mean that her life wasn't going to get more complex, only, only, only going to get worse. For a crusading husband was seeking to steal their own child so that he would not be exposed to these Christian things. I don't know the outcome of that story, but I know there's one soul that's been secured in faith by faith in Jesus Christ against that darkness. I didn't know her. I never met her. I didn't even meet her in the week that followed. I didn't know her beforehand. All I know is that God gave me that grace today to be clear with the gospel so that she, when she heard the word of a preacher in this case, a proclaimer, she believed and called unto salvation. There are people out there today that you and I are to reach. We don't know who they are, and we can't make everyone believe as simple as these realities are to us. The gospel of Christ yet must be obeyed. But we must do the speaking, the preaching, the proclaiming, so that they will have the opportunity, the option to hear, to put their faith, to believe, and then call unto God who promises to save everyone, whosoever calleth on the name of the Lord, shall be saved. Father, I thank you for the privilege of being able to remind this body with a rich heritage in their history of supporting missions, of reaching and touching lives for your son, Jesus Christ. But Lord, you're not even remotely finished with Portage Bible Church. May this body of believers never be among those that stop the process by failing to proclaim. May the sound of the gospel go forth from this place and from the lips of these people as they scatter to their homes and neighborhoods that Jesus Christ is the Son of the living God. And believing upon him, no one has to perish, but they will all have eternal life. I ask this in that name, Jesus Christ. Amen.